guy. I met Andy about three years ago in a North American Mission Board cohort meeting. And um, I'll, I'll just tell him, man, that, that meeting was so liberal, you're like pulling our hair out, weren't we? And, and I immediately felt an affinity for this young man. And I got to know him better over that time. And uh, it's just been a blessing to get to know him more and more as we've kind of come into a cohorts of our own with some other pastors in Missouri and um, some younger guys that I've been working with. So I'm, I'm so glad to be able to uh, present him to you this morning. Andy and his wife, Debbie, um, live in Vandergrift, Pennsylvania, which is just about 30 minutes from Pittsburgh, right? We moved from Vandergrift recently to Leesburg. All right, Leesburg. See, I'm not even keeping up with that. Uh, he is a campus pastor at Harvest Church and uh, one of their uh, satellite churches. And uh, his wife, Debbie, uh, is with him this morning, and all of his four sons and his mom and her friend. We're so glad to have them with you. Uh, please uh, welcome Andy. Come on up. And uh, he's going to preach to us, I think, from Matthew 28 this morning. And I told him, you know, like two hours was the norm. So is, is that about right? Is that pretty fair? <laughs> I don't know why I do that every week, right? That's the worst joke ever, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to have Andy with us this morning. Good to have you, brother. Thank you. Well, Look, let me have my water. You can't have that. No. <laughs> good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, it's been a pleasure to meet uh, some of you this morning. Uh, thank you for the warm welcome. I appreciate it. Um, as you said, my name is Andy, um, and uh, yeah, I serve, I've been serving at a church in western Pennsylvania for about four uh, years, and uh, so we are uh, privileged to be here. So thank you very much. Um, today, uh, we're going to be I'm going to be bringing the word from Matthew chapter 28, and as um, Pastor Tim mentioned, um, it's going to be primarily uh, verses 16 to 20. But we're going to begin reading in uh, verse one, just to make sure that you receive the full context of what's happening around this event. And I know you've already been standing up, but what's one more time? Because we're going to be reading from God's word. So if you will, please stand with me as we read from God's holy and authoritative word starting in uh, chapter Matthew chapter 28 verse 1 now the, now after the sabbath toward the day of the first day of the week Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb and behold there was a great earthquake for an angel of the lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow and for the fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men but the angel said to the woman to the women do not be afraid for i know that you seek jesus who was crucified he's not here for he is risen as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you will, please bow your heads with me and let's go to our Heavenly Father for help. Father in heaven, I come before you today seeking your help and guidance as I bring a message from your holy word. I ask, Lord, that you would grant me your spirit that I may preach with conviction and accuracy. And God, I also want to lift up those hearing this word today. Please open their minds to your truths and stir their affections for you. And if there's anyone here today who does not know you, may they be convicted and turn to you for salvation. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, many of you may recognize this text as the Great Commission. Now, um, it's been called that throughout history, and it's that, that's actually not found in the text anywhere, but, uh, and we don't really know who originally coined that term, but we do know that it was made famous by a very uh, famous missionary to China named Hudson Taylor, and he said of the Great Commission, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, it is a command that must be obeyed. Another famous uh, missionary and adventurer, explorer to Africa, when he was asked why sacrifice so much for the Great Commission, David Livingston said this, If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by your heavenly father be considered a sacrifice? This text, this commission has become the bedrock for missions organizations and, and the foundation for uh, church mission statements and parachurch ministries all over the nation and across the world. And there are many people who have some very strong opinions about the Great Commission, and I must admit that I am one of them. And uh, because of it, because if these truly are our marching orders, we must get it right. We must truly consider all that it has to offer us. We need to know it inside and out. We must think through all the implications and all the imperatives carefully. And this is my meager attempt to accomplish that goal, not in two hours, maybe, but more within the next 30 to 40 minutes. Also, um, we must assume that as we approach this text, that this commission, if it has been given to us by our Savior, which it has been, then we must truly believe that it will happen that it will be fulfilled. I think so many times we approach this commission and we think to ourselves, it's actually not going to be fully happening. It, it's just it, it, there's Somehow we're going to lose somehow, and, and that's just not the case. This has been given by our Lord and Savior. We must recognize that this is truly going to take place. People will be evangelized. The gospel will save people, and this world will see the good Jesus coming out of the clouds, and we will truly gospelize the world. This is what the Bible teaches. So as we begin to look into this text, we, we want to see how all these things take place. So we're going to begin in verse 16 and work our way through. 
So as you, we read earlier, this is all taking place at the tail end of Matthew's resurrection narrative. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he has sent word to his disciples that they are to go meet him in Galilee. And in verse 16, it begins, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. These disciples were eager to see their Lord, and they obeyed the instructions that, the, that was conveyed by the women who encountered Jesus after his resurrection. And you'll note that there's only 11 disciples here. And if you're unfamiliar with this story, um, but you're like, wait, isn't there always like 12 disciples in your head? Well, there was. But unfortunately, the 12th disciple, he betrayed Jesus. The Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish religious council, convinced Judas, the 12th disciple, to um, give up the location of Jesus for money. They paid him um, several pieces of silver so that they could come and capture him in the middle of the night. And uh, after the Sanhedrin pressured, after the, the, Jesus was presented before a, a mock trial, and afterwards the Sanhedrin uh, convinced and pressured the Judean governor to execute Jesus as a rebel against the Roman Empire. And Judas took his blood money, the ones that he received from the Sanhedrin, bought a piece of property with it, and then hung himself on a tree on the land, recognizing that he truly had betrayed an innocent person. And so that's why there's 11 disciples, and now they are going to a place which is very important in the gospel narrative, a place of Galilee. This is a region in northern Israel where both Jesus and most of his early disciples were originally from. It was here in Galilee where Nazareth was located. It was in Galilee where Capernaum was located, where the Sea of Galilee was, where Jesus calmed the storms, where they, uh, Jesus first called his disciples to be fishers of men. And it's going to be in this location that Jesus is also going to give them this commission. Now the text continues, it says that they were going to a mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And it's not clear as to which mountain specifically Matthew was referring to. There are a few locations that some scholars have speculated upon, but they are inconclusive. But whether whichever one it was, Jesus gave very clear directions to his disciples as where they were going to meet him. And then in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Now, the disciples arrived at this designated location. And imagine with me for just a moment what, seriously, what must have been running through their mind. Now, in the Matthew narrative, this is the first time they're seeing their Lord since his death, since they buried him. So just imagine what you would have been thinking in this time. Like, we're sitting here on top of a mountain that our dead Savior, we saw him dead. He was, we watched him. He was betrayed by one of our own. We gave three years of our life to him. He was betrayed. He was sent before mock trial in the middle of the night. He was spat upon. His beard was plucked out. They then turned him over to the Roman Empire where he was beaten. And then they watched Jesus carry his cross naked through the streets all the way up to Golgotha where some watched in horror... As Jesus, their Savior, their Master, who was going to change everything, was nailed to a cross and hung to die. And then, after he died, they removed him from the cloth themselves, carrying him, wrapping him in cloths, and, and putting spices and oils and ointments on him, and then putting him in a tomb. They saw this happen. They know that he was dead. And all of a sudden, Mary and the other Mary, they... They come back saying, guys, Jesus is alive. We saw him. Can you imagine? Would, what would you be thinking right now as one of these disciples? Ah, Mary, we all, we all wish that Jesus was with us. 
It just seems so unbelievable. Peter was so scared that night that he lied three times about even knowing Jesus. But then they see him. They see this figure coming towards him. And I'm, I'm immediately reminded of that moment in Galilee where they're on the Sea of Galilee. And like, like there's a great storm happening. And all of a sudden, and they they're, don't know what they're going to do. But then they look out and they see this ghostly figure. Right? If you recall this story. Some people believe. Peter immediately was like, that's the Lord. And I'll prove it. Jesus, if that's you, call me out and I'll walk on this water. Some people said it was a ghost. That must have gone through their minds as they see him walking towards them. And it says that some believed and worshipped him. The word worship here is translated literally as, as though you were um, kissing your hands towards somebody in a reverent way. It could also mean that they were lying prostrate or even kneeling before him. Because if they did not believe that Jesus was God before, they most certainly did now. Because he was walking towards them after they had seen him die. They carried his lifeless body in the tomb themselves. So you can imagine like, okay, maybe we should listen to this guy. He's alive now. But there were some who doubted. And this should remind us. It's not an easy thing to be a mature, a mature Christian. It's hard to be a mature disciple of Christ. It's, it's not as though you can just pray a prayer and you're good to go. At some point, you're going to have to put your faith where your mouth is. And you're going to have to trust Jesus. And that is not an easy place to be. But then Jesus spoke to them. And he had some very important words to say to them. Because these men who were doubting and the ones who believed, all of those things started to go away because he was about to open his mouth. And you know, whenever Jesus talks, everybody listens, especially if you were dead for three days and now you're alive and talking. And it's here where we get the words of the Great Commission. But unfortunately, from what I have gathered, Christians often ignore the weight of the necessary precondition for the commission itself. Most Christians jump straight to the therefore go into all the world and make disciples because it's there. However, there's a key word in this verse that tells us that the imperative is grounded in the verse that comes right before. Now, last week, Pastor Tim, he talked to you about imperatives and indicatives and all these different things. So you remember, you remember this, right? There's a, there's a linking word called therefore. Yeah, I, I watched it. I know what you were talking about. There's a linking word. There's a linking word here that takes you uh, that, that makes sure that these two verses aren't separated. They must come together, together, and it's that word, therefore, which means before we even get to the Great Commission, we need to know this precondition. Now, I want to propose a structure for this part of the text. This text contains first an assumption, and then an imperative, a target, and a means by which we are to accomplish the imperative. Now, the contents here are bookended by two very important promises that we want to make sure that we capture as well. And the bookend is found in verse 18. It contains this precondition that I'm talking about. Without it, the success of the Great Commission won't happen. Without this foundation, there can be no certainty of success of actually making disciples of the nations. And so in verse 18, Jesus says, and this is the first promise, I take it. As a promise, and this is this bookend that we must root the entire commission in. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
I have to say it again because I think we often miss this. It's easy to speed read past this, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I think that one of the reasons why we speed read past this is because, yeah, yeah, we know that Jesus already has all the authority, right? He's always had that, hasn't he? I mean, he is God. Matthew chapter 11 tells us that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. That's Jesus speaking. In John chapter 3, verse 35, Jesus says again that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. In John chapter 13, verse 3, it says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So it certainly seems as though Jesus had already possessed authority. So we kind of take this verse for granted, but there, there's something that's changed. We know from the Bible that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So how could there be a change? Because of, because, because of this, we know that Jesus was, always, uh, was, always has been, and always will be God. And we know from John chapter 1 that Jesus, prior to the incarnation, was with the Father, with the Godhead, united, perfectly united, at creation. Not only was Jesus at creation, he was the means by which all things were created. And further, Paul will eventually go on to say that not only were all things made by Jesus, but also for him. So all things still belong to him. But here's the distinction. Here's, here's what's changed. I'm going to read this so I don't mess this up. Before the incarnation, God the Son was. But Jesus, the God-man, was not. Before the incarnation, God the Son had all authority in heaven and on earth. But Jesus, the God-man, had not yet died for sinners. The wrath that God's people deserved for their sin was still being held over their heads by the accuser of the brethren. Blood had not yet been shed for the remission of sins. But then this God-man, Jesus, he stepped in on behalf of his bride. He pointed at the accused and said, she is mine, and I'm going to die for her. He went willingly to the cross and poured out his own blood so that he might purchase her for himself. He took responsibility for her sins and took them to the cross with him. And in exchange, and this blows my mind every time, in exchange for those sins, do you know what Jesus did? He gave his bride his righteousness to be clothed in so that when she stands before the Father in heaven, she will be spotless. Without blemish. Perfect. Jesus then took our sins to the grave with him. And they were buried. And when Jesus came back to life for our justification, he left them in the ground. Now he stands over the accuser of the brethren, which is Satan. He stands over sin and over death, absolutely triumphant. He has done this great work of redemption once and for all. And the Father exalted him to the name that is above every name. To his throne. And now for the first time in human history, not only is all of creation and all of heaven under the authority of God, but also the God-man. And this is the distinction. This is what changed. This is why when Jesus now comes to his disciples, although he already had everything before, now as he comes as a, as a dead and now risen Savior, both fully God and fully man, because Jesus isn't like 50% God and 50% man. He's not 75% God and 25% man. He's fully God and fully man, perfectly representing our federal head before the Father. And so when he died, our sins were taken away. Just like when Adam sinned, they were 
we inherited that. We inherit Jesus' righteousness here. And now this seed of the woman, the Abraham's offspring, the son of David, born to the Virgin Mary, the son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, holds authority in both heaven and on earth as both God and man. This is why he has authority in heaven and on earth. Now we want to consider for a moment the ex- excuse me, the extent of his authority. How far does this go? Because even now, many people disagree on what this means. I've had multiple debates within my family, within friends, other pastors who disagree with me entirely on this. And who knows, Tim might have to you know, fix whatever it is I'm saying up here. But it says that Jesus was given all authority. Was it some authority? Partial authority? Authority over maybe you know, the sun, the moon, the stars? What about people? Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Nothing good or bad happens outside of his sovereign decree. And he's orchestrated his sovereign decree in such a way that although he has decreed all things from the beginning to the end, he's done so without being the author of or the causer of sin. Now this is a very complex truth, but it is what the Bible teaches. And I have two verses that I want to use to illustrate this point in Isaiah chapter 46 verses 9 to 11 God says this I remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other I am God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east The man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And then to contrast that sovereignty, James, Jesus' own brother, says this in chapter 1, verse 13 of his letter. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So do you feel this tension? That God is absolutely sovereign over all things, and yet he is not the author or causer of sin. And so we have to understand that. And the reason I'm pointing this out, because if, if this is the, the foundation for the commission, before we even move into what it is and what we must do for this great commission, we need to understand where it's rooted. And we have to understand how far it extends so we know what our jurisdiction is. If you are going to make disciples, where are you going to make those disciples? Who are they going to be? Where do you stop? Do you stop? We need to understand how far the authority of Jesus really goes. God spoke through Isaiah saying that his decree is absolute. And yet by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James says that God tempts no one, nor can he be tempted. The authority of Jesus not only rules over general creation, like many of us, I think, generally, including myself, often think. But he also rules over people. Over kings, and to bring this home a little bit, over presidents and governors and city commissioners and law enforcement, God reigns. Revelation chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the ruler of kings on earth. He has authority over believers and unbelievers, politicians and civilians, law enforcement and soldiers, employees and employers. And he not only has authority over them, but he exercises his authority over them as he pleases. And it's always for the good. 
We must understand that the extent of Jesus' authority is limitless. His jurisdiction has no bounds. There's nothing off limits for Jesus. And it's rooted in that truth that we move into the commission. Because we need to know Jesus, he's, he's, he's not going to stop. He's going to keep pressing outward. And he's going to use his church, you, to do that. You are the means by which Jesus accomplishes his purposes on earth. So this brings us to verse 19, which is the assumption. And you're going to be like, the assumption? I don't, I don't get what you mean by the assumption. Well, the very first two words, go, therefore, has much confusion over them. So let's first recognize, as I mentioned before, this link between this verse and the one before. The word, therefore, links 19 with verse 18. And you could rephrase it like this. In the light of the limitless authority that Jesus has over everything, his disciples, you and me, must now do something. And I haven't told you what that thing is yet. So don't, don't think that it's the word go. Go isn't the imperative here. In fact, the word go is actually the assumption. Which, uh, which understand, I understand why some people take go as a command. Like they oft, because mission organizations often use this verse to say, well, I must go somewhere else to really fulfill this. That's just not true. And I'm going to illustrate why. See, the word go in English is truly an imperative, right? If I tell you to go do something, you would. But in Greek, that's a grammatical error. The word go here is actually something called, and don't glaze over here, an aorist passive participle, right? Any, any grammar fans in the room? I'll admit, when I was, when I was in school, this, this, there, there were two subjects I hated the most, and this was one of them. Grammar. So imagine my surprise and when I began preparing sermons, how much grammar really matters. Because otherwise we get this stuff wrong. This aorist passive participle means that instead of it being go, it would be more accurately translated as, as you are going, make disciples. Not go and then make disciples. And this makes perfect sense in the Jewish context. In fact, this is how God commanded parents in Israel to teach and disciple their children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, God tells the people of Israel, uh, gives them this word and commands them to uh, teach their children this. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you'll, I think you'll recognize this principle. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So just like the people of Israel were commanded to teach their children as they went about their daily lives, whatever it is you're doing, so God's church is commanded to make disciples as they go. You understand what I'm saying? You track with me? I'm good? All right. Which leads us to the actual imperative, the true command in this text, which is this. Make disciples. What is that? Like, we, you hear it all the time. If you've been in church for any number of years, like, that's a thing, right? Discipleship, discipleship ministries, you need to make disciples. It's an important thing because Jesus tells us to make them. He tells us 
that we must go and develop these disciples. So what is that? Well, the word disciple simply means student. And Jesus is telling his students to go and make more students. Well, what does a disciple actually do? How does a disciple conduct his or herself? Well, Jesus tells us plainly earlier in this gospel, Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 26, Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I just, I just have to caveat just a second. Have any of you noticed Christian leaders, pastors in our nation that are currently in the process of forfeiting their soul for the sake of the world? There's actually quite a few of them out there, and many of them are popular. People 10 years ago, I would have said, is my ally. He would have been my, he would have been my brother. I consumed their content. But there are people now who are letting the world tell them what they should and should not do in ministry. We're not supposed to do that. But Jesus says doing that is forfeiting your soul. This means that far and above our own preferences and desires, we must first desire Christ above all else. Jesus is not interested in lukewarm worldly Christians. You either are all in or you are all out. Some people might say, well, that seems a bit extreme. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus, Jesus is pretty extreme. He kind of shakes things up a bit. They killed him for it. So what is a disciple? According to the text that we have today and the one that we just read, a disciple follows Christ. He dies to self and he makes disciples. This is what a disciple does. This is how he operates, or she. And so where do we find these disciples? Who is our targeted audience? Who must we go to? Is it just one specific group, or is it a couple of different groups? Are we just supposed to continue discipling those in our pews? Where do we find these disciples? The target that we are given, it's just a little one, all nations. All Nations. This is an all-inclusive call to discipleship. All people, everywhere from every language, ethnicity, age, sex, none is to be left out from this call to come and follow Jesus. We don't discriminate on this. No, you go everywhere and you proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Now this does not mean that they will all come. But what it does mean is that Jesus' words do not fall to the ground empty. What it does mean is that anybody who hears the voice of the shepherd that they recognize will indeed come. This should be an encouragement to you. Because that means that no matter who you're proclaiming the gospel to, the good news that Jesus died to save sinners, if that person belongs to Jesus, they will indeed come. And it's not on you. You just... Do what you're told, and it's going to be left up to Jesus. Jesus is going to change hearts. The Holy Spirit alone can change the heart of a sinner. You actually can't do that. You actually cannot convince somebody to follow Jesus. But you are to tell them the truth in love about the person and the work of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit changes their heart. 
It's an impossible but very possible miracle that Jesus does. It's impossible for us, but it's possible with the Lord Jesus. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not our pragmatic ways of doing things, not our, our how tactful we can possibly be, not by um, attracting people with all kinds of different things. It is the gospel message that carries the weight. And you know how I know that it's not the other stuff? Because it doesn't actually say the thriving children's ministry is the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't actually say that whichever style of music or style of service that you want to do is the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't say that you have to have the coolest VBS in town to have the power. No, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Do you believe that the gospel is truly powerful enough to save people? It goes to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. And all who hear the voice of their good shepherd will come. And this is where we begin right here in Pennsville. Right? Salem County. Delaware Valley. We just keep pushing out. You don't stop until Jesus gets back. Would we find ourselves... Uh, what was it? I think it was John Calvin. He, somebody said, man, you, you need to take a break from preaching because he was like on his deathbed. And he said... But my, that my Lord may find me idle? <laughs> like, no, I'm not stopping. I will preach until I collapse in the pulpit, which is basically what happened. This can be done with courage and confidence because Jesus carries the weight of the authority. You can go into this world with courage and with confidence, knowing that the gospel will be victorious because, we, as we said earlier, the the precondition for this commission to be successful is that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. So to recap, there's been an assumption, which is the as-you-go piece. There's been an imperative, which is to make disciples. We've been given our target, which is all the nations. Which, seriously, just thinking about that, all the nations. I'm just thinking about how the disciples standing around hearing Jesus, and they're still trying to contemplate what's going on. Sorry, I keep backing away from the mic. I'm sorry. Um, the, what, what, what's going on? Like, he's alive. He's talking to us. He's here. And you said, wait, what? Going to all the nations? And they kind of look around at themselves after, like, the last 48 hours. No, after the last three days of being scared and hiding in a room. And they look at each other like, us 11 are going to go to all the nations? How would you feel in that moment? But Jesus did not leave them empty-handed. He gives them a couple of tools or the means by which they are to accomplish this task. So the means, how do we go and we make disciples? Well, the first thing that Jesus gives is to baptize them. And I don't think this is in any particular order, but I'm going in order of what's in the text, is by baptizing them. You guys are Baptists. You know what baptism means, right? Because just in case, I'm going to say it. I'm going to tell you what it's about. Baptism is a tangible act of faith that depicts a spiritual reality. It's something physical that Jesus has given to us to remember what he did in our souls. Because when you go under in the waters of baptism, I don't know if you remember this, but... If you've not been baptized, this is what, what you'll experience. You go under the water and somebody's holding you there. It's a little uncomfortable. You can't breathe for a minute. You're holding your breath. You are not breathing in this moment. 
Much like when your sins went to the grave and you shed off that old man. But then you come out of the water and that water is running off of you. You hit the air and it's cold. It's fresh. It's new. And you're reminded that you have been made new. This is the picture of the gospel. This is what regeneration is. It's what it means to be born again by the Spirit and with water. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus. This beautiful picture of what it means to be reborn and made new. So you go beneath the waters of baptism representing your, the death of your old man. And you come out new, resurrected with Jesus. This is what, the, this is what baptism means. It's what it stands for. Now I could, you could probably preach a whole sermon on baptism. So I'm just scratching the surface. But in essence, baptism is a tangible act of faith that depicts a spiritual reality. But we're not just supposed to just dunk people. We're supposed to do it in a name. We are to baptize people in the name of the Father. This is the triune God, right? So in the name of the Father, who elects sinners for salvation, who elects a bride for his Son. We baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son, who has redeemed and purchased his people for his own, with his own blood for himself. And in the name of the Holy Spirit, who alone, as I mentioned, can change the heart of a sinner, truly making them holy, and this is the best part, sealing you for eternity. You belong to Christ. And so not only do we baptize, we do it in the name of our triune God, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now to some of you, you hear the word Father, and you may not think, well, my Father wasn't all that good. I don't really want anything to do with that kind of dad. Let me tell you, this Father is a good Father. And I heard a pastor say years ago, don't ever compare your don't ever compare the father in heaven to the fathers of earth you compare your the fathers of earth to the father of heaven because he's perfect and he is right and we are to do everything we can as fathers to show his fatherly love to display his love not don't don't compare it with your dad if you had grew up with a dad who was abusive or hurtful look to the good heavenly father now, that's not the only means that we have. We also have the means of teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. And the first command that we teach is a simple one. Because before this, no sinner can do anything else. A sinner, their first duty, what's the first thing a sinner has to do? Get saved. That's right. Repent. So that's the first thing. Don't go, and if you're going to go and try to make disciples, don't start with, well, you need to stop Sleeping with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you stop. Don't start there. Start with you need Jesus. You're not going to care without Jesus. You call them to conversion. I think it's John Owen who said this is their first and only duty as a sinner, not saved. You need to call on Jesus and repent. And the Holy Spirit will begin working in them, making them more like Jesus. That doesn't mean you ignore the sins that they're dealing with, but once they repent and belong to Jesus, then we bring them along. Does that make sense? That's their number one priority is to be saved. Now, Jesus gave us many other commands, and some people would like to say it's only the letters in red. I would beg to differ. If Jesus is the triune God, and he is one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit, that means that he was at Sodom and Gomorrah. That means that he was around during the flood. That means he was there in the wilderness with Moses, Jesus has been there all along. So if we're going to teach people to do all that Jesus has commanded, we teach them all of it. Which means that we need to know our material. That's why we must 
study 2 Timothy chapter 3.16. Everybody should have this memorized. Right? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for proof, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of it. Now, at that time, remember, the letters in red weren't there yet when Paul wrote that letter. So he's talking primarily the Old Testament. So remember that. When we teach, when we make disciples and we're baptizing, we're teaching, they need to know their Bibles. Now, this can all seem very overwhelming. I know. I find it overwhelming. It's overwhelming to get up here and, and preach something that I could, you could probably split this into a couple different sermons. Because this is by no means exhaustive as much as I want it to be. It's overwhelming. But you know what Jesus says? Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. He, say, he says that if, if you're worried about keeping the commands of Christ perfectly, he said, Don't worry, because if you love me, you're, you're going to keep them. You belong to me. I put my spirit in you. I'm changing you. So now remember that Jesus is telling his disciples this. And again, they're still trying to process everything. Jesus can see how overwhelmed they are. I mean, as Pastor Tim might say, he's like, it's a good thing the disciples right there didn't form some kind of committee to weigh the pros and cons of, of, of whether or how they would go into the nations and all these different things. No, they, they were shocked. And Jesus sees their weakness and their fear. And what does he tell them? This is the final bookend. And, and you should hear this. This is important. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Yeah, this stuff sounds scary. It's hard. It's not easy. Being a disciple, it's, it's, it's hard work. But Jesus says, don't, don't worry. My, my commands, they're not burdensome. I am with you always to the end of the age. Whether you face, um, whether you're uncomfortable, you're dealing with any kind of pain or loss, are you dealing with any kind of depression or anxiety? Are you confused? I mean, our world, we live in clown world right now. It's confusing. I've got four boys over there, and according to our culture, they're all going to be some kind of oppressive, terrible person. We've got to trust Jesus for these things. Are you afraid? Are you doubting like the disciples doubted? There's just things to keep in mind as we continue working to fulfill this great commission, what Jesus has given to us to do. And this is a reiteration of the dominion mandate. And if you don't know what that is, it's found in the first couple chapters of Genesis. It's where Jesus tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Now, in, their, in that case, there was nobody else on the earth yet, so they were just supposed to have lots and lots of babies, right? And they were supposed to fill the earth. They were to subdue the earth. And I have a hard time not putting these two pieces together because if we're going to go make disciples of the nations, it sounds like we're going to subdue the earth and, and, and multiply disciples. Like this is rooted in, in the creation mandate. Jesus is just reiterating something that he's already said. He's just uh, altering it. Just, he's adding some extra language in there. And so the question is, do you believe that this can actually happen? Do you believe that the commission that Jesus has given to us will actually be successful? Do you think that one day we can look back and say the United States has submitted itself to the Lordship of Jesus? Can we look, on, can we look at the UK and say that 
the UK as a Christian nation? Can we look to Iraq or, or China or Japan? Zambia this year declared themselves a Christian nation. Do you believe that the commission that Jesus has given will truly be successful? I feel like that just sounds really impossible. Well, I've got something for you. Do you remember what Jesus told Mary? Or do you know what Gabriel told Mary about the birth of Jesus? She said, how is this possible? And what did he say? All things are possible with God. That sounds idealistic. Sounds irrational. But it's the truth. It is what the Bible teaches. And you have to ask yourself, do I believe it or not? And this also means that we have lots and lots of work to do. If we're truly going to evangelize the world, if we're truly going to go to all the nations and bring the gospel to them, there's lots to do because it doesn't, it's not happening entirely yet. So we need to build businesses and we need to build schools and churches and, and organizations that will go to these areas of the world. And you start right here. You guys are already kind of starting it right down the street. You guys have a school that you're going to start this year. You're beginning that. That's awesome. Keep working at it. And I know Tim. And I know his heart. I know what he wants to do. And so you guys are going to be working to that end. So you are called into the world to subdue it and make disciples. And you can do this under the authority of Jesus because that's what gives you the You, wouldn't, you have, would have no right to call anyone to repentance apart from, that, apart from him. Now, if you're here today and you don't know this God-man, you don't know this Jesus who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, who has died to save sinners, he is calling you today to repentance. Don't leave today without coming to Jesus, repenting of your sin. And that's like a Christianese word. If you don't know what repent means, it's very simple. It means that you are, you are at one time running in one direction towards your sin to embrace it. And then you stop and you turn around. And when you repent, you run to Christ and you cling to him. That's repentance. And if you're here today and you have not repented, you're still running after your sin. Today's the day to stop. You know what Jesus says? He says that anybody who comes to him, he will never cast out. He said that anybody who comes to him who's weary and heavy laden... If they take off their heavy yoke of sin and put on his yoke, which is easy and light, and remembering that his, burdens, that his commandments are not burdensome, he will give you rest for your soul. Come to him. Come to this Lord who is powerful in authority, powerful in love, powerful in grace. He calls you today. So in light of this text, I call you to go and make disciples. Not according to what you think you should make disciples, but according to the way God says we should make disciples. So if you will, please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for how it speaks to every situation of our lives. Lord, I pray now for those in this building and those outside this building, those in this area, in this nation in this world Lord we pray that your Holy Spirit would go out and reap its harvest use your church use this church use Pastor Tim use the leaders here use their school to make disciples not according to the pragmatic methods of this world but according to what your word teaches you are truly a good and a gracious God and Lord we thank you 
We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen.